This is Designing the Revolution. You're listening to Chapter 18, Part 2, A22. So, in the previous chapter, we were looking in some detail about how these A22 civil resistance organisations are set up um, and how they're structured and how they're really a manifestation of, of the work that we've been doing over the last 10 or 12 episodes in terms of creating proximity, sociability, design, organisation and what have you. Um, so what I'm going to do in this final part on the A22 network is look at the broader picture and the international aspects of this. Because as we identified at the beginning of the last uh, episode, the big structural strategic picture here is this transformation global by definition. Otherwise, it's going to be no transformation at all because uh, what's obvious, of course, is the climate crisis is global, the economic crisis is global, there's a big internet-connected world. And the good news, because obviously a lot of people feel this is, you know, makes everything radical, a bit useless. But the good news is we're in this massively connected world and it's extremely easy via Zoom, for instance, for lots of different people to connect over big, dis over big distances. Um, so the real question is, how do you organise people? Um, from different countries in some sort of single organisational space. And again, as we've discussed, there's these two extremes, these two juxtapositions that get sort of trolled out every time you're thinking about organisational issues. So you have the old, you know, Leninist routine, not necessarily called Leninist, but, you know, top-down, old pre-1989, whole load of bloke, blokes usually, hogging power, uh, self-selecting, dysfunctional, semi-corrupt, reformist at best, um, and everyone else oppressed by them, inverted commas. And at the other extreme, you have this horizontalist, self-indulgent, chaotic, you know, ever-flowing, ebbing and flowing, mess <laughs> of a sort of horizontalist uh, orientation which is great for you know setting things up and initial enthusiasm but very rapidly creates disillusionment uh, dysfunctionality hidden hierarchies uh, abuses of power because there's no accountability and such like so what we're going to do when we're looking at international governance let's call it that is Try and apply these principles we've already been developing and say, this is no big deal, right? There's, you know, the Earth's a big place, but it, it's got its limits and we just need to design with the same sensitivity and uh, analytical vigour, as you might say, um, that we do, you know, a small organisation in Manchester in the UK. Why not? Um, so... Here's a design, right? So in the A22 network, quite early on, what we made this decision was we were moving on 
again, we're moving on from this horizontalist, you know, we're all meeting together without any structure, you know, this sort of fluffy networking idea to an organisational structure. So this is the big move. The A22 is an organisation. Uh, I mean, it's called the A22 network because people just use the word network, but formally speaking, it's an organisation. It's not people just coming together and drifting around. It's like you're in. If you're in, you're in. If you're out, you're out. There's a clear dividing line. There's a membership. And if you remember, then you get to have one person uh, sitting on the international team. And that team meets once a month and it has a constitution. So you know how to get in. You know, if you're A22 group, you know how you get formally become a member of A22. You're voted in in the last analysis. <coughs> it's a majority vote. If you all turn into, you know, fascists or, you know, psychopaths or whatever, you know, there's a way to get rid of you. In other words, this is an ordered organisation. It's written down. There's not pages on it. You know, there's two or three pages on the Constitution. How you get in, how you ask to leave. These are always two critical questions. Um, does this central group, they have an agenda, uh, they discuss some matters, uh, there's a number of working groups about particular topics. <coughs> Those working groups report to the executive, this group, they have the final say. So it should all sound reasonably familiar uh, as, as this uh, A22 orientation. And then what's a little bit different, I suppose, is, is what's called the International Mobilisation Group, which is a bit of a mouthful, but that's really, you know, without beating around the bush to bureaucracy. They're the group that goes to meet with other um, new groups, uh, monitor existing groups, uh, facilitate various training events and what have you. So you notice there's a professionalisation of what you might call the civil service element. So again, this is a bit transgressive of horizontalist dogma, as it were, where, you know, everyone just gets together. No, if you want everyone to get together, someone has to do the work. If you want someone to do the work, ideally, you need, they need to be paid to do it reasonably or at least to focus on it in terms of full time. And what that does is it creates a solid, coherent centre. So it's not like just making decisions and then, you know, two months later it hasn't been implemented because no one's had the time. It's more like, no, there's a bunch of people, you know, three or four people. It's nothing dramatic at this stage of the game. And they have defined powers. They have to do a report. You know, there's protocols. Again, we're not talking about 100 pages or anything. But there's a clear, like, fundamental paradigmic moving on from this sort of networking, voluntaristic orientation. And that doesn't prevent, and arguably, it actually encourages a voluntaristic ethic in the sense that they can help people organise Zooms, connections, one-to-ones between the different groups. So, you know, that's the top line stuff. In a minute, I'm going to look into a few more detailed elements of it. But, you know, the words that come to mind are, it's defined, okay? It's a defined organisation, it's clear. And of course, it's good enough. No one's pretending that this isn't going to have major conflicts or whatever. But, you know, the proposition is it doesn't have unnecessary conflicts. It's doing a good job. And there's this concept we're going to talk about a little bit more in five minutes or so, which is there's a balance, right? There's a balance between the bureaucracy and the actual members 
uh, of the different uh, organisations, the different membership organisations, and then there's a balance between <coughs> the autonomy of those organisations and, and the centre um, as a balance. All right, so let's look into this in a little bit more detail for five, six minutes. Um, a, central, a central critique of the horizontalist orientation is that it creates unordered conflict. In, one of, in other words, you have two conflicts going on at the same time. You have the conflict, you know, uh, should animal rights organisations, you know, be involved in A22? It's a substantive conflict and there's always going to be those conflicts, you know. But then there's the unordered conflict or there's the unnecessary conflict, which is how do we decide whether direct action organisations from the animal rights movement are involved in A22? Well, you know, and the, cl the classic question is who decides, you know, and then who decides, who decides. We've discussed this a few times. This is not just a peripheral problem. This brings down networks, <laughs> as I'm sure some of you know. It's like, because there's a confusion over power. There's a confusion over who's got power and who hasn't got power. And of course, the reason why there's a confusion over power is because there's this, you know, rather entitled bourgeois romanticism that you can get rid of power by pretending there is no power, which is utter nonsense, of course. Uh, so what happens is, is the power re-emerges in a more toxic form because you can't decide, you know, you're in denial about power. <coughs> so people that do take power uh, can, cover, can cover for themselves, you know, they can pretend they don't have power even though they do. And a whole bunch of sort of toxic uh, rabbit holes that tends to happen. So the nice thing about this is in a single stroke you can say, nope, those problems, you know, nine times out of ten aren't going to occur because we don't need to have process conflict, as you might say. We don't need to have unordered conflict. We're always going to have conflict. Human beings want different things. But the, the conflict is ordered, which is the constitutional proposition, which, of course, again, can go to an extreme. You can have, you know, massively complex constitutions which send everyone to sleep. But hopefully you can see, again, this is a sort of balanced orientation. Um, <clears throat> <clears throat> and this this um this ordered conflict is is supported by the constitution right it's like this, these are the branches of the tree but you know every tree doesn't just have branches it has leaves in other words you need the structure the hard constitutional power arrangements but then up, upon that you're building this um culture of sociability this is the oil that oils the wheels, to use another analogy. Um, and we've talked about a whole bunch of ways in which this is facilitated, you know, check-ins, people socialising together, you know, having weekends away, um, respectful individual difference, you know, respect for the person uh, and such like. Um, so a particular, a particular sort of micro routine here which I haven't think I, I don't think I've emphasized this but tends to come into play quite a lot where you have sort of higher political institutions as you might call them is there are genuine balancing conflicts and and they can become quite torturous 
So one of the routines here, which we uh, have had in a number of organizations I've worked with, which have followed this orientation is, you talk about something for 15 minutes. If after 15 minutes, there's not an emergent consensus, then the protagonist, the two people, or the two groups that have got the biggest problem, go away and they're forced to work together to work out something which all the group is going to agree on. And, you know, eight times out of 10, the, the other people in the group are broadly okay as long as those two groups are happy with it. So what this does is it prevents this, you know, this problem you have on both on the Leninist extreme and horizontalist extreme is this eight-hour meeting rubbish, <laughs> which, you know, for anyone that's vaguely normal is, is, is death-inducing. In other words, all your meetings shouldn't be more than two hours long. You know, occasionally it might be four hours because you're having a big review and you have a break in the middle, but they're human. Uh, and and they have this 15-minute rule. In other words, like, you don't get into this big, clashy sort of conflict, uh, which is always undermining of trust and and what have you. It's like, let's take a breather. You know, you guys can talk about it. You can talk about it in a more informal context. You're not playing to the audience. You know, you're not trying to trying to get shamed or... Uh, and what have you, because you're shown to lose in front of other people. You can have a more private chat, discuss it in a more informal setting, and 10 times, you know, nine times out of 10, people are going to sort it out. Um, we've already discussed this notion of a bureaucracy, so I'm going to pass over that a little bit. But just to emphasise, this is a major cultural change, people being paid to do these background jobs. Again, this de-stresses the whole system and assuming they're doing the job well, it just makes it a lot more joyful to work in the organisation, you know, as a representative because you know you've got this support by people who will provide the minutes and, you know, write stuff up and keep policies and what have you. Then there's the induction. So we're all familiar now with this induction process. People who become representatives, they don't suddenly march into the constitutional group, you know, with no briefing, no induction, how it works. They've got like, you know, two or three hours on it. Again, you don't have to spend hours and, and days on it. And that, the function of the induction is to create the sophistication of cooperative working, you know, if someone disagrees with you, don't panic about it. You know, there is an ordered constitution to support you. You don't have to go into life and death mode, which is often what you find in structuralist settings, you know, because people don't feel protected. They don't feel supported. The beauty of a constitution is, is that there's a way of deciding. And if you don't get your way, then it's clear. You don't need to get bitter and twisted about it. It's just the way it is. It's what's called democracy, for instance. Um, yeah, so that helps. And then that connects with the next point, which is what I would call like an ecology of community. Okay, so you've got the hard structure, as I said, the tree, the branches. And then on top of that layer, you've got this infrastructure of, of a culture that creates this cooperative atmosphere. So, for instance, you have training events you know, maybe have training events on um, 
you know, working groups, working, uh, what, what the function of a constitution is. But lots of people don't know this. You know, I'm a nerdy person. Maybe a few of you are. You understand what a constitution is. Most people have no idea. They don't even know why it's important. So you have trainings on it, which in, encourages greater understanding. You have inspirational t uh, speakers. So, you know, Noam Chomsky turns up, you know, all these people, these international people, A22, you know, it's got a lot of credibility. There's lots of cultural figures around the world will go, yeah, you're cool. You know, I'll come and talk to you and you get a thousand people on the call and, and it's impressive. OK. And, you know, a lot of these people have got a lot of very sensible things to say. So that brings people together. Again, it creates this sort of culture of connectedness. Then you have like mentoring. So the new groups, as we've discussed, they're helped. There's help on hand, you know, if they're not getting on well, someone can facilitate a meeting and such like. And then lastly, you've got this horizontal support orientation. So again, we're not against the word horizontal in, in so much as there's nothing intrinsically bad about horizontal connectivity. Obviously, it's part of all ecological systems. You know, someone in France knows someone in Germany. They have a chat. Fantastic. This doesn't need to go through the centre. So if Germany wants to have a chat with France about, you know, raising money through social media adverts, they don't have to ask permission. They just go and do it. It's nothing dramatic. You know, sometimes they might want to coordinate with other countries and have a bigger group. But at the end of the day, the whole idea is this is a mutual aid network. So we're not throwing all that baby out with the bathwater. Mutual aid is a fantastic notion. People helping each other, you know, in order to become more effective about what they do. And then the last um, the last section on this is is which is a little bit controversial. So I'm not saying there's, this is the last word on the matter, but someone introduced me to this concept a while ago, which is the concept of the source. And there's an idea here, I can't remember whether I mentioned it in previous episodes, but I think it's quite good in terms of international organisation, which is once someone's been, you know, someone, you know, moves through the ranks, as it were, you know, and they end up sitting on the international group for, a year let's say at some point it's good for them to move out of that and allow a younger or more inexperienced person to become the representative but they don't just disappear or they don't fight to get back on it you know the gracious thing to do as you might say is they become a source person in other words you know this is this elder phrase well they might not actually be, be that old or maybe they are but the notion is is Number one, they've got gravitas, right? They prove themselves. They've gone through, you know, they maybe they've been to prison. Maybe they've been arrested lots of times. They've done lots of work. Maybe they've set up civil resistance organisations. So basically, they're on hand, and and they're brought into the the central international core group, and they're asked their advice, and they give their advice. And again, nine times out of ten, it's useful advice because they've got lots of experience. And then, classically speaking. Sometimes there's one person or maybe there's two or three people who initially set it up. And it's best that those people don't fall into this sort of founder's trap of holding on to power. It's just a really boring, bollocksy thing, right? It's like, so, you know, without beating around the bush, I'm one of the source people. Arguably, I am the source person. You know, who cares? It doesn't really matter. But I don't have any formal power in A22. 
you know, I'm an advisor, I do lots of networking, I do videos like this, but I'm not, it's not like I'm head honcho and if I don't like the Spanish group, I can have a, you know, just have an edict and get rid of them. So again, this is like a more sophisticated, holistic, you might call it indigenous-esque notion of a power formation. You know, if you look at the anthropology of in African tribes, for instance, they have older people, you know, blokes who are, you know, officially in power. But you look a little bit closer at the ecology of connections and you realise actually the only reason they have power is because they're saying something sensible. They can't really force people. So this is what you might call, you know, a pre-vicious, you know, violent extractive hierarchy sort of way of organising society. And this is something which we're going to discuss at greater length in terms of what, what uh, the political space needs to move back towards with this new philosophy of, uh, of connection. All right, so, you know, there's a bunch of other bits and pieces, you might say, but hopefully it's given you a flavour. And as I said in the last talk, you know, if you're specifically interested in A22 and, you know, this is a living live moment, this isn't some academic, you know, case study of something in 1850, this is going on at today, right? Um, you can get in touch and get involved and you can study it and, you know, um and this whole thing is is likely to e evolve so what i want to do before you know making a few speculative final comments is to give you two quick case studies of fantastic organizational experiments in the 20th century i'm not going to go into great detail because again if you're interested you can go and look it up on the internet you know there's a whole bunch of books about these things but it gives to give you a taster so what i've described to you isn't hasn't just come out of my head or it doesn't hasn't just landed out of nowhere you know there's a long tradition of what you might call humanistic cooperative organization and you know all these things because they've actually existed in history have got their pros and cons no one's pretending they're perfect but they're enormously inspiring because they provide key elements of what the post-capitalist, post-hierarchical, extractive, you know, bollocksy system we've got, uh, where we can actually replace it with something that's just as grounded, right? This is not non this isn't a utopian scenario. There's a history of, of organisations that have substantially managed to humanise uh, human interaction. All right, so the first one is Mondragon. So if you haven't heard of Mondragon, you should have. <laughs> Mondragon is the biggest uh, cooperative complex, as far as I'm aware, in the world, or at least in the Western world. By cooperative complex, I mean it's a combination of banks, uh, workers' cooperatives, you know, business cooperatives where all the workers in a, in a business own the business, housing cooperatives where the tenants own the houses, uh, training institutes. Started in the 1950s and I think it started with a workers' cooperative and then it built on from there. No, actually, I think there was a, some sort of training institute. Um, and it grew, it grew out of a central concept. So if you've heard me talk about balance and you think, oh yeah, balance, you know, that's quite, that's quite an interesting little idea. No, balance, the concept of balance is probably 
the central the central concept of organizational design and interestingly it's juxtaposed of course to this notion of progress the notion of progress is you're moving forward everything's improving you know it's going to get better and better once it's really better it's going to get improved again the concept of balance is quite metaphysically different it's more like the system never changes it's either just out of balance or it's in balance and the idea is you get it in balance and then once it's in balance that's it it doesn't get super in balance so it just oscillates systems just oscillate around some notion of health and the notion of health is primarily about balance so concretely what this means you know it's just not just a vague philosophical idea it means <clears throat> it means that when when you're in a group the central question is 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 what balance between two arguments is correct what balance between two logics is press it's not saying one logic is wrong as we've discussed previously a logic often is right the problem with a logic is not that it's wrong but it's incomplete in other words there's another logic which covers another part of reality and it just so happens you have to deal with both so then you're looking at a suboptimal solution but it's balanced it's the least worst scenario if you see what i mean because it doesn't perfect either logics but overall it's better than just going with one logic so this is a practical it's a practical you know meta point when you're in a group you know at eight o'clock at night and you're feeling a bit tired and you just get into a bit of a you know this is right because of these reasons this is right because of these reasons it's like yeah they're both right how can we combine them and um yeah so that's like again it significantly reduces conflict it absolutely does not and never will re remove conflict but it keeps conflict within these bounds of a common meta understanding of what you're trying to do okay the other thing which is sort of interested is in it with this model and you know i do encourage you to read something that's really interesting if you're sort of quite nerdy about all this stuff is um I think this is significant that the Mondragon experiment came out of the Spanish Civil War and the early 50s. So these people, you know, they had had a hard time, to put it mildly, right? You know, there's nothing at all glamorous about the Spanish Civil War and the thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that died. So they had a gravitas, this mid 20th century gravitas which made them serious about their political philosophy, which obviously has been massively missing over the last 30 years because times have been good and I've got no problem with good times. But one of the bad things about good times, as we've discussed, is, is people become slack. They become, they become lazy. They, become, they don't care about each other in an intense and mature way and all the rest of it. So... I think what's interesting about Mondragon is as the world works, wakes up to the utter horror of the climate crisis, you're going to have this maturing process, sort of not dissimilar to what happened in the Spanish Civil War or the Spanish or in the um, uh, 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 Second World War, right? So you're going to have increasingly people coming in to A22 spaces or into these spaces more generally going, I'm serious about this. I'm not going to mess around. This isn't just some 
little six-month experiment. This is my life, right? You've got a massive job to do. So it's worth looking at how that the Mondragon model translated this core culture of seriousness into this amazing, massive complex. You know, I think it had several hundred thousand people you know, involved in it in, at the peak. And the last thing is, is coming back to this source idea, interestingly enough, is that this, um, the person that started it, you know, didn't have this American, you know, Elon Musk routine where I set this up, you know, I'm the genius, I'm the top dog, you do what I say, you know, I'm brutal and all this bollocks. It was like, this was, this guy was a Catholic priest and he was embedded in the personalism of Catholic theology and political thought, which is something, you know, I've talked about off and on during these episodes, which has been quite a big influence on me. And this notion of, you know, at its best, and, you know, you can criticise these things, obviously, but at its best, what this personalism was saying was, is the human person needs to obviously be involved in the economy, but they don't need to be treated like shit. They need to be treated with respect. They need to be given time, you know, to learn jobs. They don't need to be worked too hard. They need to be, uh, you know, treated with respect in conversations. They need to be given time to adapt to new working practices. You know, all these things which are sort of common sense, except they're not, of course, in the world we live in. So this guy basically never held a formal position. He did loads of training. He was a mentor. You know, he could have conversations with people. The founders used to come to him for advice and, and such like. So you have this sort of interesting, non-patriarchal, non-hierarchical power, but it is a power. Uh, but it's a power which is constructive because it doesn't have a formal sort of, um, you know, a formal I can get you sort of constitutional sort of situation. OK, so <clears throat> the second one, uh, to be honest with you, I'm not an expert on. So I'm not I'm just going to give a flavour of the second one. But I think it's like fascinating. <laughs> and this is the experiments that happened in Chile. I think around 1972, 1974, don't quote me on that, but as uh, as we, I think we've talked about this before, there was an election in Chile, the socialists got in, I think it was for the first time ever, and they started enacting a whole bunch of socialistic policies, you know, nothing massively dramatic, but, you know, major changes in a sort of, you know, classical liberal framework. And most people know this because the CIA, uh, to cut a long story short, you know, subverted the government and there was a coup and the guy who led the government was was shot and Pinochet came in. So it's usually looked upon as some massive tragedy and obviously it was in some respects. But the thing I want to focus on is something that's very, you know, a lot less known, which was there was a sort of post-Marxist orientation with this group. They didn't want to do the old Soviet top-down top sort of routine. They were trying to think sophisticated in a sophisticated way about this genuine design conundrum in, in socialist systems that you want to create equality, you want to create equity, you want to allocate resources in, in a just and efficient way. But it's actually quite difficult to know what's going on because... There's no market mechanism where arguably things, you know, reach some equilibrium. And so what often happens is because you've got incomplete information and you're trying to do everything through conscious human processes, 
you get this misallocation of resources and it becomes inefficient and a lot of the critiques of socialism you know quite rightly uh, point to this problem so there's a long tradition and this has re come up you know a lot more with the whole digitalization situation which is maybe with digitalization and computerization you can get all the data and crunch all the data and get you know rational resource uh, allocation and have a social through a socialistic orientation so at the um at the um at this point of course in the early 70s there weren't massively sophisticated uh, computers so this is very much a prototypical sort of situation but the upshot of it is, is this idea of cybernetics so you might want to check out this out which had a certain heyday in the 50s and 60s and 70s so again this was the science of information you know how you get information from one one part of a system to another so here's 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 how it what it what it led to what it led to is a whole bunch of computers and people would across the economy would input information about how they were doing and then it was what was called an oscillation, you know, like, you know, coal production, you know, was plummeting or something, you know. Then the people who were in charge, the civil servants and the socialist politicians, they could go, aha, you know, there's a problem there. And they could go and attend to the oscillations that were prevalent. So if something was particularly good or particularly bad, then they would just focus on that. If things were trundling along, that would be fine. And they could, you know, produce timelines and uh, time series and they could use this statistics in real time because all this information would be coming on in, in real time to create rapid responses to this system and keep it in some sort of balance. And of course, at the same time, from a political ethical point of view, there was this accountability across the system. So, you know, in principle, there wasn't some factories in southern Chile, you know, running off with loads of resources, uh, corruption and what have you, because you had this transparency. Now, what's interesting, of course, is, is, is at the time what socialism meant, and you, a lot of old socialists who have this orientation, is that, is that centralisation is good because it brings all this information together and you've got this accountability and for them that's what democracy means so in the modern postmodernist period democracy is is meant everyone can do what they like in some horizontalist mess but there's an older idea of democracy a centralized idea of democracy which is actually what democracy means is you are accountable you know you in an a22 group you are accountable to all the other a22 groups and if you're going to be democratically accountable you need to give them the stats right so giving stats isn't just some cap it's not a capitalistic thing at all giving stats is actually a socialistic democratic duty right to share information so you can have effective resource allocation you know who gets what loans to help set up a civil resistance network now and again, I'm not saying like we're throwing babies out with the bathwater here. There's logics to both. You know, there's the decentralised democratic logic, local autonomy. But what I'm trying to say is there's also a very strong case for a centralised democratic logic. And, and it's up to you guys, you know, watching this, <laughs> listening to this, is to get the balance, right? The balance, remember this word again. So you want to, might want to check these guys out. But you can see it's quite an instructive case study, I think, for neutralizing you know the pseudo radicalness 
of those who basically want to go off and do their own thing and uh, and create you know rotten boroughs as they used to be called in the UK. All right so I'm going to just go through a few speculative ideas before I finish here and you know some of these are a little bit controversial they certainly haven't been fully developed in A22 but we're going to look at these in more detail as we look at how we're going to create the social and constitutional and political formations of this revolutionary society. So you might want to just keep a little mental note of them because there's a bunch of, you know, balancing contradictory logics when you're talking about these things. But I'm going to trundle through them just to, just to you know, provoke you a bit. <laughs> um, so first one is deepening f federal structures. So the central notion here is that the, that the core controls the data. So this is a central, centralised democratic logic proposition. So the idea is, is if you're going to set up an A22 group, you're going to get loads of help. If you're going to get loads of help, then the centre of A22 should control your data. It's not like they control your data in the sense they're telling you what to do. No, you can do what you like. But if you all drift off and become reformists, or you know, you're taken over by some you know, charismatic pathological individual. In other words, if it all falls to bits, you don't own the data. The people who take over your A22 group, you know, why should they control the data? Well, they can do what they like with it potentially because they've got access to it. But the rest of A22 should have that data so that they can email all those people and contact all those people and say, you know, the A22 group in country X, in your country, has gone south and it's just, you know, it's no good. So we're going to start something else. I think that's, t that's totally reasonable. And of course, you need balancing, you know, policies that the central centre of A22 isn't going to start interfering on, you know, mundane things about when he's going to send out an email or not. Now, this is quite interesting because if you look at, if you look at examples like Porto Alegre or... or you know, socialist experiments in, in India, in, in Kerala, you have this mechanism is quite strongly embedded, which is the centre can go out and reconstruct the local when it becomes corrupted. And I was involved, I think, I can't remember where I've said this in a previous episode, but I was involved in a network called Radical Roots. Uh, it provided um, mortgages for housing cooperatives. You know, it put a lot of people would put their free time into these people getting their their mortgages great you know it's cooperative house low rent but after 15 20 years the mortgage was paid off and then the house belonged to the local housing co-op well you know what happened was there was an intrinsic corruptibility of it in the sense that people would go well you know we don't want to use that capital to fund anything else we're just going to sit on it and have no rent you know um well, obviously, that there's an injustice there because that capital didn't belong to them. It belonged to the whole of the radical roots network. So arguably, there's a strong argument for saying that the houses should have actually been owned by radical roots and then leased to the housing cooperative. Um, so you can see, you know, that's one of the big issues. Another one is financial solidarity. This is fairly straightforward, potentially actually not that controversial, but... This is the notion of progressive taxation. <clears throat> so if you're a really successful civil resistance group and, you know, you're raising a million pounds every six months, you pay 5% of that into 
the centre of H22. And that's used basically to send, to give £10,000 to another country to get them on, on the go. Reasonably straightforward, right? But it requires this social solidarity ethic. So again, you're undermining that bourgeois horizontalist, you know, we can do what we want, it's our money. You know, this is, you know, you only need to scrape that attitude and you can see that that's, you know, fundamentally capitalistic, even if it pretends to be, you know, anarchistic. It's not, it's capitalistic. Um, another one is creating like media personalities. This is quite fraught, you know, just, Jamie's just been telling me he doesn't like having leaders, you know, who go on the, who go on the, uh, go on TV. Why do you have to have a leader? Well, good, good question. But there's, the, the other argument is, you know, human beings like to see a human face regularly and that personalises and humanises the ideas that people put forward. You know, you, if you're watching this YouTube channel, one of the reasons you're watching a video is you can see my face. You know, I'm not necessarily the prettiest person in the world. That's not the point. The point is it's a human being and, you know, you shouldn't underestimate the connectivity that comes from face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball connection. Okay, there's lots of literature on this so arguably you know this is just a provocation arguably there's a bunch of personalities that talk on cnn or you know on al jazeera uh, there's not just one person there's a team so you're sort of trying to get the best of both worlds you know you haven't got one charismatic you know gandhi-esque sort of top guy but you're also not doing this sort of dogmatic no one can go on the media more than twice sort of situation okay so the fourth one and we're going to be talking about this lots lots more is the transition of a22 into a general civil resistance revolutionary holistic uh, formation and if that intrigues you it should do because that's where we're going to be moving towards and i'm going to be talking about this humanity project sort of transition uh, which might get called something else. The general idea here is, you know, concretely speaking, the A22 is mainly like climate civil resistance movements. But as we all know, the social, the democratic and the ecological are increasingly the single issue. You know, there's an ecological crisis that creates a social crisis. There's an ecological crisis because there's a democratic crisis and things can't get changed, blah, blah, blah. So what we're doing here, which is exciting and obviously challenging, is, is we're moving into a classical civil resistance international federal structure, uh, you know, for the first time since, you know, the late 19th century, early 20th century before states communism sort of destroyed any sort of vitality in these organisations. Um, and um, yeah. So that's something to think about. I'm going to be talking about it a lot more. Okay, so I think, you know, that gives us you hopefully an exciting taste of where these things can go. Once you've made that transition into thinking about solid or this solid organisational paradigm, you're no longer thinking that's some dodgy thing. No, it's the exciting thing. It's a necessary thing. It's the mature thing to do when you're facing with an objective, real existential threat that we do because of ecological and social collapse. All right.
So in conclusion, you know, one of the things we can say is, you know, everything about the A22 network has been juxtaposed to the failure of Extinction Rebellion to create a proper, um, a proper mode of international um, quality control, as you might say. You know, it rapidly expanded. A lot of people know the story. You know, some of the groups are great. Some of the groups arguably still are great. And arguably a lot of the groups got hijacked, became disorganised because you didn't have this structured approach. Um, you know, people self-appointed themselves. Things became closed, ego-y. Uh, had this rigid horizontalist ideology captured by, you know, middle class young people in cities, blah, blah, blah. So the A22 proposition has three key elements, you know, this return to leadership, this return to like democratically, democratic charisma, uh, charisma which is encased in a service orientation. This is not Trumpian, this is, you know, Chile 1972, you know, I've forgotten the guy who led that, that, uh, that government, but he was in service, you know, the best of socialistic leadership, as you might say. Um, a structured approach to organisation and this ideology. There's a culture, there's a way of working uh, which is communicated systematically. And, you know, I've said this at the end of the last talk, but this is my final and fundamental point is, is this is successful. You know, in Germany with last generation, it's got 90% name recognition. It's raised a million euros in three months last year. You know, Just Stop Oil is 90% recognition in the UK, largest climate campaign in this country. You know, it's just in the process of raising over a million pounds. It raised a million pounds last year. Over 100 people working for it, two or 300 people in various other, other sort of volunteer roles. You know, these aren't, the massive organisations of the trade union movement or socialist movements of the past. But there are significant prototypical change from the chaotic, short-term, conflict-ridden, horizontalist sort of mess that we've had oh, since 1989, largely, across the, across the Western world. And they're rapidly gaining credibility by the month, this methodology. So, you know, people in XR networks, Networks are saying, yeah, this is how we want to organise. People who aren't in the climate space are saying, you know, we want to set up a democracy, uh, a democracy civil resistance project. We're going to use this A22 methodology. Um, so it works, okay? It works. And this has to cheer you up. You have to understand that we're 50% there in terms of saving the world because we have a vehicle that works now there's no guarantees as i keep saying you know if this we've got to move this vehicle into actual revolutionary mode of operation um and actually put it into into context where you've got a chaotic uprising situation that hasn't been done so it might be really easy it might be really difficult but the next you know half of this podcast series is looking at how this could be achieved 
and it's criticizable because it can be largely theoretical. Everything I've done up to now, I can sort of give empirical support for because it's, it's historic, you know, it's, it's already happened. But we shouldn't be frightened of, of, you know, trusting in theory. Everything we've done over the last four years has been going, let's trust some of the theory. Let's look at how people have organized in the past and go, you know, if it was good enough for them, it's good enough for us. So that's the end of that. I'm just doing a little sort of tangent thing where I'm going to release, uh, put on the podcast series, free videos did a little while ago on, on, um, on why the liberal, you know, the, 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 the existing system is going to collapse. So it's a little bit of a reminder of what I did in the first few episodes. So in theory, you can skip that. If you're totally convinced this system's going to collapse soon, you might not want to watch them. But if you've still got a little sembl semblance of trust that, you know, Greenpeace and the Labour Party in the UK or whatever, you know, the Social Democrats in Germany, you think these guys are actually going to do the business. With all due respect, they're not. And there's really clear theoretical and empirical reasons why that's the case. So I've done a video on the legal system, the uh, uh, legal system, video on the media system, um, a video on the economic system, and it gives you a whole bunch of arguments. So hopefully that's going to set you in, in store for the big show, which comes afterwards, which is uh, designing the revolution proper. Thanks.